Our first reading this morning is from Romans chapter 6, and I'm reading from verse 1 to 11, Romans chapter 6. What then are we to say? Should we continue in sin, in order that grace may abound? By no means. How can we, who died to sin, go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptised into Christ Jesus were baptised into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him by baptism into death, so that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body of sin might be destroyed, and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. For whoever has died is free from sin. But if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Our second reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. And I shall start reading at verse 24. A disciple is not above the teacher, nor a slave above the master. It is enough for the disciple to be like the teacher, and the slave like the master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered up that will not be uncovered and nothing secret that will not become known. What I say to you in the dark, tell in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim from the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground unperceived by your father. And even the hairs of your head are all counted. So do not be afraid. You are of more value than many sparrows. Everyone, therefore, who acknowledges me before others, I also will acknowledge before my father in heaven. But whoever denies me before others, I also will deny before my father in heaven. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes shall be members of one's own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. 
those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I've been reading about sermons in the 17th century and how they were written and heard and read recently, you know, just for fun. And um, the latest study that I've been reading has clearly been written by somebody and for somebodies who are not accustomed to sermons. Because central to the first two chapters of the book is the argument and the explanation, and I quote, sermons were not preached in order to pass on doctrinal information alone but to affect how people felt and acted. Now, I must admit, I read this through several times to make sure I was actually understanding it, because it seemed to me so obvious as not to be worth saying, and certainly it should not have taken uh, two chapters to say it. But yes, that was what was being said, and then, of course, I realized the context in which and for which it was being written. And yes, of course, it does need saying for people who are not accustomed to sermons. And I don't think it needs saying here, but I'm going to say it anyway. This thing that we call faith, this set of practices and beliefs and relationships and commitments that we hold dear and explore and ask questions and feel baffled and comforted and questioned by, it is not and certainly not only an intellectual exercise, nor is it a list of rules by which we order our lives or the lives of those around us. It is a way of being, even more than that. It is an identity. It is who we are. And as Paul is, in the passage we heard from that letter to the Romans, as he's straining the language to get to, who we are is rooted in who Jesus is and in our solidarity with him. And that, says Paul, is what baptism is all about. It's not a social identity. That's where the early Baptists were so determined to to be heard and do their stuff. They were exploring, exploring and expressing a way of being believers and being a church in a context in which baptism and subsequent membership of the national church was a social duty. I don't just mean in order to be socially acceptable. It was a required part of being an insider in that society. And you could be, indeed you were, excluded from the society if you were not baptized into the national church. That's why in the early days, about 400 years ago, being Baptist was illegal. People went into exile. People were imprisoned and fined. Churches were broken up by the intervention of the soldiers. Churches met in secret. Baptisms took place in the middle of the night. And even once the acts of toleration had been passed... There were still all sorts of restrictions. You weren't allowed to go to university. You couldn't take part in civic life at local or national level. That's what it meant to be baptized as a believer, not as a child and part of the national church. And they did it because they wanted to separate social belonging to a national community from their identity in Christ as disciples. They maintained they could still be good citizens, but it was not the same thing. They insisted that baptism was to do with this concept of following Jesus, of being a disciple, and therefore belonged to people who were old enough to make up their own minds and was not something to be practiced at the behest of or controlled by the secular or state authorities. Baptism, they insisted, is not about being included in human society. It's not about being given a name and a social identity with the family. It's not about taking your place in the social civic community. 
It's about identity in Christ. Up to and including identity, as Paul puts it, with his death. And that's not just something Paul dreamt up. Not some new and revolutionary idea that had come to him. It's there in the words that the gospel writer collects from Jesus' remembered teaching and presents in the section that we've read this morning. That passage that Nigel read from Matthew's Gospel is the lectionary passage for today, but it's part of a longer series of teachings that the writer puts together. And they're given in the context of telling the disciples to go and speak about the kingdom, to invite people to encounter the kingdom. And Jesus talks to them about the difficulties that they will face and the conflicts that will arise. And the way that it's told, this is a series of warnings and encouragements bracketed by statements of identity. The servant is not greater than the master. Take up your cross and follow me. It comes either end of the passage we've read. The servant is not greater than the master, but identified with him. Take up your cross and follow me. This is what it means. And all that we're hearing in these warnings and encouragements is within that context. That those who follow Jesus are bound up with him, are identified with him, and therefore knowing him, following him, is not just about head knowledge. And it's not about understanding facts or making sense of history alone. It's about who we are. It's about the depths of ourselves. And it's not easy. There is little that is comforting in what Jesus is saying here to those around him. This isn't the pep talk designed to send the team out full of conviction that they're going to conquer the world and be the winners. And it's not the happy talk that reassures them that this good news of the kingdom is going to be so loved and accepted that being part of it is going to be straightforward and delightful. Paul makes it brutally clear in his passage about baptism. We are baptized into his death. And this is not the kinds of death that happen to us as part of being alive, painful and real though those are. This is not what Paul is talking about. There are places where he talks about that, where he considers issues of what we might call our inevitable death, our physical death, but also the deaths of ambition, the loss of loved people, the failing to live up to our best ideals, the discovery that we're not infinite or all-powerful. Those are all real and painful, and they're not excluded from the life and the complexity of faith. But what Paul is talking about when he's talking about baptism into Christ's death is this identification with the one who comes as the person of the kingdom, the person in whom the kingdom comes into being, and the reality of the struggle and the death that that will involve. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. If his followers are truly his followers, and therefore identified with him, several things are going to ensue. Firstly, Jesus warns, the powers that be, that are threatened by the coming kingdom and its announcement, are going to categorize, name, and judge. If they call me Beelzebul, they will call you worse. Now, naming, of course, categorizing in this way is a form of control. If we can say, or better yet, tell you who you are, we can keep you under control. It's what powers and authorities do. The right to control language and determine the discourse is really significant. Just think about how the parties attempted to do it During the election, they attempted to control the questions that were asked, the terms that were used, the terms that identified those like us and the outsiders, hard-working families, the many, not the few. It's all about defining and categorizing. Think of the the different ways, in the different kind of connotations that come across in the way we talk about people who 
have left one country and moved to another. They are migrants, they are refugees, they are asylum seekers, they are illegal immigrants. There are all sorts of words that can be used and they determine how we think and how we behave. This term used of Jesus, Beelzebul, is one that associates him with a foreign god, with an idol, and therefore not us, not to be trusted. That's what's going on. The, the religious leaders are saying he is Beelzebub, he is, he is, he's not us, he's not to be trusted, he's to be kept out. It's a category of opposition. And he's warning his followers of this. If they face the powers that be, they will be classed as, talked about, those who are on the outside and not to be trusted. As dangerous to the status quo, as needing to be controlled. And it's a warning to those of us who identify with the kingdom, the identity of Jesus, that we will find ourselves so described. And it is a warning that if we are talking about people like that, in that way, as those on the outside, those to be controlled, those not to be trusted, we might just need to ask, what are we doing? Then Jesus ends with the warning that living out the kingdom is going to disrupt the closest of relationships in ways that will be painful. Splits in families, in the very fabric of society and culture in which they've been acculturated of where they are at home, that's going to be pulled apart. We're accustomed to think of Jesus as the one who brings peace and who calls us to make peace. But here's another aspect of that. If we are living the kingdom, it will not fit the structures around us, even the ones that are apparently most fundamental and most unquestionable. Being identified with Jesus, being baptized into his death, is to enter a life that's at odds with the power structures of the world in which they find themselves, in which we find ourselves. And it is to be judged and feared. It is to find closest relationships strained and broken. And in the end it is for them to find their, that their own lives may be taken. So no, this isn't a pep talk. This isn't sending the team out to win. It's a description of an identity that will put them and put us in a difficult place. It's a warning. One that it does us no harm to sit with for a while and to realize there is nothing half-hearted or trivial about following Jesus, about being baptized into his name, praying that the life that is in Christ should also be in us. And if we sit with it, then we will need to deal with that odd bit in the middle that you may have noticed I've rather skirted around. Because it is very strange. We can make sense of live like Jesus, live the life of the kingdom, and it will get difficult. You will be odd, and make the powers that be uncomfortable, they will resent it, and it could make your life more complicated than you might choose. We can even live with following this way of life will disrupt close relationships. But what do we do with this bit in the middle? Don't be afraid, but speak the truth. Don't fear people who could kill you, but fear the one who will kill your body and soul. But actually, don't be afraid, since God knows you thoroughly and loves you absolutely. Does that make any sense? It's bad enough that the Prince of Peace is warning that following him leads to a sword, even if we can argue that that's metaphorical. But how, in the same speech, can one whose whole life and death 
are about insisting that God is absolute and utter love, then tell us that if we get it wrong, we are condemned completely and we ought to take this seriously enough to be afraid. Well, I want to try out an idea on you. And this is shaped by a close reading of the Greek, so please bear with me. It's also largely shaped by my conviction that Jesus teaches that God is love and life beyond anything we can imagine and that the conventional reading of these words just seems out of true with that. Who is this him that can destroy body and soul in hell? The actual him, the word him, is not in the Greek text. What there is is a repetition of the word dunamai, power. Greek verbs can tell you who is doing it by the shape of the word alone. They don't need a noun or a pronoun. So what is here literally is do not fear power that can kill your body. Uh, yes, do not feel power, the power that can kill your body, but feel power that can kill soul and body. And both forms are in the masculine. The first is plural, those who have the power, the powers, in this instance, to kill the body. And the second one is masculine, the singular, he who has the power to kill body and soul. But what happens if the subject of the verb is actually parallel in the way that the words are? The powers that be have the power to kill the body, the power that has the power to kill the body and soul. Where does it actually say God in that? Jesus does not say, fear the Father, his normal way of talking about God, for he will kill you body and soul. He tells us that the power to fear is the one that has the power to kill our soul and body. So stay with me, because the next question is that soul bit in soul and body. What does soul, the word is, in Greek is psyche, representing contrast to body, the word in Greek is soma. Now there's been a lot of research in the last few years demonstrating that Jews, like Jesus, did not think of the body and soul as separate and separable in the way that we do. Our way of understanding this kind of dualistic way is deeply influenced by Greek philosophy. But Jewish thinking, and once we know it's there, we can see it very clearly in the Jewish scripture, is that body and soul are not separate things that are together for a period of time and then separated at death. But there are two sides of existence, inner and outer perhaps, which are interdependent. And if we come at it this way, what Jesus is referring to here is the power that can destroy our bodies, and we're not to fear that. And that makes sense when we remember he is constantly telling people not to be afraid, and he lives his life and faces his death in the practice of not being afraid of what we think of as death, because he insists it is not ultimate, and therefore does not destroy us absolutely. So do not fear the ones who can kill your body. But here there's the warning then about that which can take away our humanity, that bit of us that reflects the image of God, our inner self, which is our absolute self, and destroy it in whatever is meant by hell, Gehenna in the Greek text. Fear the power that can destroy you being human. He goes on from this to reassure those who are listening that the love of God is such that God has counted the hairs on their head. It's an image of intimacy and commitment. And to say that this God is so committed to the life of the universe that he is aware of the tiniest and apparently least valuable part of it as judged by human terms, that is, by money. These sparrows that you can buy, many for a penny. So just pause for a moment and wonder, why would the kind of God that Jesus is talking about is living the life of 
Why would that God want to destroy in this utter way that which is apparently so beloved? Maybe we're getting this wrong when we read it as a warning that God is saying, get it right, or no matter how much I love you, I will destroy you utterly. Maybe Jesus is warning us not to be afraid of God, but to be afraid of those powers that can destroy our humanity by creating hell and inviting us to participate in it. Let me read you something. Let me start by saying I'm not judging the people here, but here is what is being said by some of those about the move to buy flats in an unfinished block of, of premium flats to house folk who've been affected by the Grenfell Tower fire. Some of you may have seen it. It's so unfair, said Maria, who was reading the news in the Evening Standard with two neighbours about people moving into these block of flats. She bought her flat two years ago for a sum she's unwilling to disclose. We paid a lot of money to live here and we worked hard for it and now these people are going to come along and they won't even pay the service charge. Nick, who pays £2,500 a month rent for a one-bedroom flat in the complex, also expressed doubts about the plan. I'm very sad that people have lost their homes, but there are a lot of people here who have bought flats and will now see the values drop. It will degrade things and it opens up a can of worms in the housing market. Now let me say again, I'm not judging them, at least I'm trying hard not to. But what I want to suggest is that they are caught up by these powers that destroy our humanity and kill our identity as those who are the image of God. And they've been taught and shaped and formed and trapped into a world in which this kind of response seems right and seems appropriate. And we might call that a kind of hell. For it is not a place where grace and love and life and the promise of God are flourishing. And we could multiply that. Not just around Grenfell Tower, but we can multiply that if we look at the fear and the horror that people inflict on one another. Because they can't see another human being. They see somebody who threatens them, or somebody who undermines them, or someone who will take what they need and want. And could it be that that's the power that can destroy not just the body, but the soul and body, that which makes us people in touch with the whole of life and love and renewal and creates a hell and traps people in it, and that's what Jesus is warning about. And what Jesus is talking about isn't personal morality here or a holy huddle that shuts the other out. He's talking about the kingdom, about the reconciliation and the renewal of all that is, the creation of a world. And it is in direct contradiction to the world as we presently encounter it all too often. Our world as we know it and as we are shaped by it demands death and sacrifice of the other as its energy. It's the kind of world in which that kind of response to the use of the flat seems right and proper. It's the kind of world in which the damage done to the environment in order to provide us with the foods we in the Western world demand and the damage done to too many people as we cause the damage to the environment seems a price worth paying. In the choice to change it is too risky or too impossible to contemplate. And so the kind of world in which, for example, the USA will be removed from the Paris Agreement. It's the kind of world in which the Israeli government is so afraid and so shaped by a horrific past that it's willing to inflict on those whom it deems dangerous, including the children, a regime of oppression and terror. And that regime is supported by greater powers because they're held to ransom by economics and by the moral blackmail of historic victimhood. And at the heart of all of those and so many more examples we might give is the violence that will force the world to be okay for me at whatever cost to somebody else. 
And isn't that a world in which not just our bodies, but our souls and bodies are destroyed by powers that resist the kingdom of renewal and participation and reconciliation? And this, these are the powers that destroy being human, destroy us, body and soul. And here is Jesus' significant warning. Don't be afraid to face the deaths you are warned about. If lifestyle changes, it's a form of death. We can't afford to adopt green policies because it will kill off our economic advantage. We can't show compassion because there's not enough to go around. We can't afford to reconcile with our enemies because they might hurt us again. All of those are deaths we fear and try to avoid. And Jesus says, don't be afraid of that. But be afraid of the kind of system, the kind of power that kills our humanity, our identity in God, the image of God in us and in the world. Don't be afraid of being described as outsiders and disruptors, he said. They've done it to me, they'll do it to you. Don't be afraid of the disruption that will come to your closest relationships and what you've been told and have assumed is the heart of stability and identity. Don't be afraid of what looks as if it might kill you. Don't be afraid of all of that because you are loved and known by the God of all life. Fear what will destroy the identity you have as human because it is so easy. Fear it when it looks comfortable and safe and secure. Because that destroys us body and soul and takes us into a hell. Fear that and dare to live the identity, the identification with Jesus. And though it looks like death, and though the world around and the powers that be will tell you it is death, though you experience it as dying, yes, those who lose their life for my sake will find it. If we are united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That's Paul's take on it. And it's the same as Jesus promised. The life that is in him, which he offers to be in us, is not stoppable and it cannot be destroyed and it is eternal and absolute because it is the love of God. This is not behave or God will throw you in hell. It's not don't believe that you need to live in hell that the world's the powers that be create in and of this earth. There is another life, another way, another possibility not just for individuals, but for creation and all that is created. And the disciples of Jesus are those who are called to discover and announce and dare to live it for the blessing and the transformation of the world, not in their or our own strength, but as those who have been baptized into Christ. Baptism changes the world. Those who are baptized are baptized into a new world and they make the new world as they live it. Because as they live, as we live it, we are living the life of Christ, the life without violence and without fear and without destruction. And as we live love, so love lives us and the kingdom comes.